the hoodie had to go. Alright, let's go. Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, please take that physical one home. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things, uh, God uses the Scriptures, His Word, the Bible. He uses it to reveal Himself to His people, to make Himself known. All right, And so we want your life to be shaped by knowing Him, being known by Him, all those things. We think God does that through the scriptures. And so if you don't have a copy of your own, that puts you at a disadvantage. Uh, but you can take that one, start reading it, and I'll call it the best part of my day. And it's a pretty good day. All right. Um, I, I'm going to go home with at least one or two desserts today. Um, so Ruth chapter four. Uh, welcome to week number nine, nine of our effort to walk through the book of Ruth together. Uh, I was second guessing uh, myself when I slotted this for nine weeks, but God's been good to us anyways. Uh, somehow we've gotten here. Uh, and if Jesus doesn't come back before the end of our time together, we are going to finish Ruth today. But that would be better if Jesus came back, right? Or maybe Ruth can wait. All right. All right. So if you're new here, maybe you've just been gone the last uh, handful of weeks, few weeks. Uh, Ruth is um, an incredibly... Uh, dense uh, little story. It's a small footprint, only four little chapters, and it's sandwiched between two much larger stories uh, in the Old Testament, the time period of the judges and the time period of the unified kingdom, or the kings, uh, we could say. And so these little small four chapters are just kind of sandwiched in between much larger stories, uh, but Ruth packs an incredibly massive punch, all right? Um, four little chapters that tell a massive tale of sin and consequence of brokenness and bitterness towards God and redemption. It tells a story of incredible humility met with equal amounts of incredible uh, uh, resolve. And, and so I think Ruth has been incredibly good to us. I think she's been really good to us. And last week we saw the showdown at the gate of Bethlehem, right? Those of you who are familiar with the story, uh, you know, the next morning after Ruth and Boaz have their little DTR, the define the relationship conversation, um, Boaz makes it, he makes an intentional rush to head out to the city gate and get the matter settled. Ruth has proposed to Boaz, asked him to be the redeemer that she knows that he can be. Ruth adores this idea, but there's a problem. There's a redeemer with a closer claim than his own. And so uh, last week we saw him go out to the city gate to settle the matter. Boaz calls together some of the town elders. Uh, they were men in the community who could attest to things, who could serve as some kind of official witness for all kinds of things, including uh, business contracts and matters of justice and all that stuff. He calls over this other mystery redeemer. We're not allowed to know his name, so we gave him the title, Mr. So-and-so. All right? He calls everybody to sit down at the city gate, and after Boaz gets everybody in place, they start the, the proceedings, right? He says, gentlemen, here's the situation. This is what's going on. We need, you and I, Mr. So-and-so, one of us needs to buy Naomi's land. That's what redeemers do. They step in to help. They step in uh, when there's a financial need or a legal need. That's what re we as the redeemers in this family, it's our job. We've been recognized for moments like this. And as redeemers and as the elders of this town, we can step in right now and we can make this right. That's the game. Let's do something about this. Let's, instead of sitting around waiting for it to fix itself, now let's handle this. We got everybody here, let's handle it. What do you say? You got the closer claim than I do. 
You have first right, then I do. And so what do you say? Right here now, just go ahead and give your answer. We've got everybody present. And if you say no, I come next in line. I promise you I'll do it. That's what Mr. So-and-so is presented with. What do you say? At the end of verse 4, he says, yes. Yes, I will redeem the land. Sounds noble. I'll handle it. I'll step in to redeem. I'll fix this problem. Absolutely. We, we, can, we can handle this. In doing so, our romance story seems to have hit a dead end. Right? But Boaz isn't done maneuvering. Immediately after that, he says, now wait a minute. Hang on there. Slow down. If you take the land, you also have to take Ruth the Moabite, as a wife. See, it's not just Naomi that, that we need to step in and help here. It's Ruth as well and Elimelech with them. And so we also need to step in and provide an heir to perpetuate this family line. All right? And so Boaz throws this other piece on top of this land deal. And upon hearing that, we're told that Mr. So-and-so drops out, right? He bails. Why? We're told explicitly because it would cost him the legacy that he wanted to leave behind. We said last week, that while being the Redeemer sounded good, when it was just kind of a low-cost commitment on this other guy, uh, that it was a good plan for him to say, yes, absolutely, I'll handle this. That desire disappeared the very moment that that cost rose to something that was actually important to him, his legacy. While he had the means to step in and redeem and, uh, and to, to provide in this way, he lacked the resolve to do that when it actually mattered. But Boaz, man, Boaz is your guy. Boaz is your guy. He's got plenty of righteous resolve. And so Mr. So-and-so, as he backs out, you kind of see the, the, the scene in this story shift into celebration mode, right? Everybody ex- kind of just celebrates at the city gate. They're having a great time. True love has won in the end, right? Yay, romance. Woo! Everybody in town is throwing a little party at the gate. And if it were a movie, right, you know how this game goes. Ruth and Boaz would share their first kiss under the archway of the city gate as it faded to black, right? That's how every romance movie works. But this ain't a movie. It's it's not some cheesy rom-com, and Ruth ain't even there. She's back at Naomi's house waiting for Boaz to settle the matter. So now, now it's time to get our ride off into the sunset moment for the story of Ruth. You ready for it? Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 13. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. I'm going to call a timeout already. So, what an amazing trajectory that God has brought Ruth through throughout this story. Have you picked up the different things that she has been called? I mean, she's gone from a self-proclaimed foreigner and slave to, to, to two weeks ago, we, we saw that she had kind of dropped the foreigner routine, all right? And so she was just referring to herself as a maidservant in that moment. But now in chapter 4, the narrator is identifying her as Boaz's wife. As his wife, the the Moabitess, the widow, has been elevated in this community and elevated in this family. And she has been folded into all of the rhythms uh, and the workings of life and community in Bethlehem. She's been elevated and elevated and elevated and she finally belongs. We're 
We are far past, I'm just an outsider here, may I have some food. Ruth is an incredibly loved, genuine member of this community and this family. Back in chapter 2, when Boaz and Ruth first met, if you remember, Boaz told her then that he wanted God to restore to her all of the things that she had lost. And even though Boaz was already working in that moment to fulfill material things like food and shelter and provision, uh, she, Ruth had lost way more than just food and provision and shelter, right? She had lost way more than that. She had also lost community and husband, and now those things too have also been restored, And how do you not love that story, right? Yay, we have come full circle. But not merely restored. Because God didn't stop there. The Lord has gone well beyond those things. We're told that the Lord gave her conception. It seems pretty quickly, if not immediately. We've seen God's sovereign hand at work all over throughout this story. Point after point after point we can point to and say, yeah, yeah, God definitely put those two things together. But there are two times in this story, that, in, in the story of Ruth, that we are explicitly told that God did that. The first one is back in chapter 1. God, uh, Naomi heard in the field that God had visited his people, right? And so she decides it's time to go home. And here... Here we're told that God is personally responsible for opening Ruth's womb. Which brings us back to a tricky conversation that we had all the way back in in week one of this series. Ruth was married to Malan, Elimelech's son, for ten years uh, before he died. And and, and in this culture, absolutely no one is choosing not to have children. And so we inferred all the way back then that, that Ruth was barren. We're not told explicitly in the text, but it's, it's hinted at in the text. And that barrenness probably, in all likelihood, had a ton to do with the rebellion of Elimelech's family. The story seems to indicate that God withheld fruitfulness and withheld blessing that Elimelech so desperately wanted to chase after on his own terms in a foreign land. He said, I don't need God, I'll go do it myself. And God said, I won't let you have it. And here in chapter 4, we see that what was withheld in Moab is now being graciously lavished in Bethlehem. And because of that, we have to ask massive questions, I think, here about sin and about the, the blessing of God and how all that works and how the pieces actually go together. Like, with the specific circumstances of this very story, the story of Ruth, it would be fair, I think incredibly fair, to assume that God likely withheld the blessing of a child because of this family's sin. I think it's written all over the text. It's hard not to to land there on the argument. But it does not follow that blessing and fruitfulness are now being given in Bethlehem simply because repentance happened. You see the difference in those two things? The calculus is not as simple as God gives good things to, uh, to you when you're on his good side and withholds good things when you mess up. You might think that that's how the world works. i got to be honest with you. I sometimes am guilty of thinking that that's how the world works. If the week's going bad, I must have messed up somehow, right? We, have, we all have a little more uh, animism in us than we like to believe we do. Oh, I, I, things are going well. God must be happy with me. Things are not going so well. God must be upset about something. 
calculus isn't that easy. God can and does bless, and he can and does sometimes withhold blessing, and he does both of those things through both seasons of sinfulness and seasons of relative righteousness. Both of those things. And all you have to do to tease out that logic is ask the question, why did I need to use the word relative? Did you catch that? We don't have seasons of sinfulness and seasons of righteousness. We have seasons of sinfulness and seasons of relative righteousness. Those aren't the same thing. It is a preposterous idea that we can live in such a way that God would look down and go, wow, you really nailed it this week. Good job, cowboy. Here, have all this stuff as a reward. That's not how God operates. Every single blessing, and I'll say that again because it matters. Every single blessing that we, you or I, have ever received from the hand of God has come to us through his gracious generosity in spite of our sinfulness. So God granting conception is not a moment of God finally being pleased with Ruth or being pleased with the rest of this family. It is a moment when God fulfills his incredible plan for her by giving her what was lacking before. He withheld blessing for his good purposes, and now he is freely bestowing blessing for his good purposes. But Ruth didn't just conceive. We're told that she bore a son. Our narrator seems to have picked up his pace a little bit. That, that those nine months just flew right past. All right? We got little, little snippets of story here, and all of a sudden we're nine months later, and we got a baby in the lap. The son is fathered by Boaz, but in a legal sense, he is the direct heir of Elimelech. So functionally, this means that this child is cared for by several layers of people and provision. He's got multiple people uh, looking to provide for him. But poetically, this means that Naomi is being restored, not just Ruth. Naomi has a child here. And we see that spelled out in more detail in verse 14. Look at it. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. All right. So the women gather around Naomi. Uh, in case you forgot, the last time we saw these women in Bethlehem uh, was when no Naomi was blowing up all over them. You remember that moment? Um, so just in her bitterness, she, she lashed out in anger at God and at others because she didn't want to be called the pleasant one anymore. She wanted to be called the bitter one, Mara. Remember that? A fun little moment. <laughs> what I'm guessing, uh, it's just my, my assumption, I'm guessing Naomi probably wishes she could take back right about now. Right? Would you be in her, her shoes? Also notice Mara is not being tossed around anymore either. We haven't talked about that one since chapter 2. We've clearly left bitterness behind. So we see the women of Bethlehem here return with great celebration. But not merely celebration of Naomi, celebration specifically of the Lord and for his obvious redemption that he's brought to her. 
They're celebrating God in this. They, they, they last appeared in the story when Naomi was blaming God for emptying her of all of the things that she thought were good in her life. But now they come rushing back in with joy as he has made her full again. They say a couple of incredible things. If you caught them as we were reading through. First up, the Lord has not left you without a redeemer. What a line. Now, that little title has always carried a specific meaning throughout the story of Ruth. Specifically, identified people within a family structure who kind of carry a recognized duty to step in in financial and legal means uh, to provide for a need. And so, Redeemer was a title you were given. It was not just an action you took part in. It was a formal title in your family. But here, that title picks up extra layers, right? Because we're not talking about grown-ups right now. We're talking about a baby. We're talking about the the baby boy. He is called a redeemer. This boy is the fruition of redemption in Elimelech's line. He is the finally fulfilled promise of Naomi's physical salvation, and he is the fullness of rest that Naomi so desperately wanted for Ruth. Naomi was convinced throughout the entire first half of this story that God's hand was set against her, right? That that he was cruel and mean and angry at her and that nothing in her life would ever be good ever again. Count on it. But Naomi, she, she did not understand the conclusion that God was lovingly drawing her towards. She allowed the tragedy and sorrow of the moment she was in to cloud out her trust uh, in God's goodness. She allowed it to to kind of blind her to the reality that he was active and that he was working, that he was actually going before her for her own good. She allowed bitterness to to shield that off from her. And and, and there's a little bit of an I told you so buried in, in the tone of what the women are saying here. See, see Naomi, the Lord didn't leave you without a redeemer. Look at all he had planned for you. May the boy's name be renowned in Israel. Now, no one has mentioned the boy's name yet. If if you've read the story, you know what the boy's name is. But this story's original audience, they have no idea what the boy's name is. If you haven't read the book of Ruth before, that seems like a pretty innocuous thing to say. Uh, Those of you who skipped to the end of the story, you you already know that this boy's going to end up kind of being a a big deal uh, or a bigger deal than they even understand. Um, Sometimes, I don't know if you've noticed this in life and and, in the scriptures too, sometimes people say things that are meant well but end up being an incredible understatement when you compare them to what God is actually doing. You ever seen that? This is one of those moments. When you hold it up and compare it to what God is actually doing, it looks small and like you had no idea. I also say that this boy will be a nourisher of your old age. And I love that line because in the Hebrew it has a double meaning. Right? You, get to, you get to say it two different ways. Uh, my guess, my, my actual guess is that both of those ways are intended in the reading here. Literally, it says, he will sustain your gray hair. Sustain your gray hair. Just like Ruth, this baby boy will be there to provide for Naomi in her old age. She's, he's on it. He's going to be around and he will take care of her. He will literally sustain her. But the second meaning brings a lot more whimsy to the party. 
Um, the word for sustain, or nourish in the ESV, uh, it can also mean supply or provide. Meaning, this boy will give you your gray hair. <laughs> I love that. As a guy who's losing my hair instead of it growing gray, I don't get it, but whatever. Right. Now see, in our culture, that's automatically seen as a bad thing, right? But, but that's not how people in the Old Testament would have uh, thought about gray hair. You've got to remember that Jewish people talk a lot more poetically than we do in our own culture. There's a lot buried in what they say. And so, yes, gray hair comes by both age and stress, but gray hair is not a negative thing to a Jewish mind. It's a celebrated thing. Proverbs describes it as a crown of glory, right? So the way that the women are talking about it here, I think it's right to read it as a cute little joy-filled celebration of the great honor that is coming down the pipe for Naomi as this kid grows up. My dear Naomi, this boy will finally help you earn your gray hair. Congratulations. But while the women have great things to say about the boy, they have something way, way better to say about Ruth. Did you catch it? They claim that she is worth more to Naomi than seven sons. Now, this is an amazing claim all on its own. One, one great daughter-in-law is worth more than a bunch of sons. Like, daughter-in-laws are great, but that's a, that's a pretty steep hill to climb, right? Um, but this claim is even more astonishing when you know that it's being said in a culture that believes that providing an heir is the greatest honor a woman can have. Like, that's a massive statement. Ruth is more valuable to Naomi than seven heirs. Are you kidding me? What an outlandish claim. But, th- but this isn't some, you know, Naomi needs a son like a fish needs a bicycle kind of nonsense. All right? This is not discrediting the value of sons. It is a good and proper celebration of just how unusually valuable Ruth is above the rest. Have you seen Ruth? Have you taken stock of all that she has done? Just like we talked about a few weeks ago with the six measures of barley that Ruth came home with. That number seven, that's no accident. No accident. Uh, it's the number that people in their culture would have kind of naturally used to express the fullness something, of something. Uh, we're, we're a base 10 culture. We see 10s as good, round, kind of full numbers. They like sevens for some reason. I don't know. All right? That's just how their culture works. And so these women celebrate God, and they celebrate Naomi, and they celebrate Ruth, and they make the bold claim here that through Ruth, the birth of this little boy will bring more redemption and more restoration than if Naomi not only hadn't lost the two sons that she had, but she also had five more to go with it. This is an awful lot about Ruth. Also says a lot about the fulfilled promises buried in this little boy. Which we see play out in verse 16. It says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, who was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Naomi has walked through more than a decade now of waiting for joy on the other side of sorrow. You ever lived through a moment like that? Bad week, bad month, bad couple of years. Decade plus for Naomi. When is the joy finally going to come? I'm ready for the good moment, God. 
Naomi has walked through more than a decade of waiting for joy on the other side of sorrow. She lost her home. She buried her husband. Not long after that, she buried her two sons. She said goodbye forever to one of her daughters-in-law. And you can make the argument that she probably drove her away in a moment of depression. It wasn't a good moment for Naomi. She has lashed out at old friends trying to welcome her home. And she seems to have even reached a point in the middle of the story where she didn't care if she lived or died. Naomi's in a dark place or has been in a dark place for a long time now. Naomi has experienced some stuff. But that decade plus of sorrow is finally capped off by laying a brand new baby in her lap. What a moment. Grandmas know that moment better than anybody else. This is an action that she probably wanted to experience over and over and over and over and over again in this very, very long, sorrow-filled decade. And that moment has finally arrived. We're told that Naomi takes an extra step in the raising of this child. She acts as another mom for him. Her role exceeds, extends even beyond what was typical for a grandmother in a Jewish culture. Again, layers and layers and layers of provision for this, fa- for this kid and for family care for this kid. We're also told that Naomi's friends are there to, to give this kid his name, which sounds weird to our ears. It also makes us think that um, this, this part of the story is happening in the first week after this child was born. Uh, the reason for that is that in this culture, uh, a male child would be circumcised on the eighth day and his name would be publicly pronounced. All right? And so everybody would get to know what the family had named the kid on the eighth day. It's not too long until we're celebrating Christmas. Uh, we see this exact same kind of scenario play out in the birth story of John the Baptist, if you're familiar with that. The community has gathered around. The story hinges on John's dad, Zechariah, fighting back everybody else's protestations that John is in a family name. It's like, no, 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 no I don't care. It's John. <laughs> and so what we, when it says here that the neighbor women named him, that means exactly what you think it means. They, they're the ones that gave him a name. They actually named him. That does not mean that Boaz and Ruth had no role in it, but it does mean that the culture that this kid is growing up in had a much larger like, footprint on the story than what our culture is like, just kind of naturally you know, okay with. Like That sounds weird to us. How dare you? <laughs> no, they get to. And everybody's cool with it. And so what's the name they give him? Obed. I keep telling y'all that there's a lot of good Bible names out there that need to make a comeback. Obed is one of them. Do it. All right. If you got a kid coming, give it a good look. Obed means servant. Means servant. And we don't know much about Obed, honestly. We, we don't know, you know what he experienced growing up. And it's during the, the end of the time period of the judges, which is not a great time to be hanging out in Israel. Um, we, we, I'm sure he was well-loved, though. It, you think he grew up in Ruth and Boaz's house without, you know, kind of, kind of picking up some of their character? I'm sure this kid was a good kid. We don't know anything else about what he was like as a young man or what he became in his old age. Uh, and if you're growing up in Bethlehem, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, you got sheep and barley in your future. That's what you're going to do. So Obed was probably all about sheep and barley. The only thing we know about him is what we're actually told here, that Obed grew up to have a kid of his own, Jesse. 
That, grew up to have, that kid grew up to have a bunch of other kids. One of those kids was King David. Dun, da, da, da. Hey, remember how I told you that while Ruth might have a small footprint, it has an unfathomably large impact? Bigger than anybody is paying attention to. See, see, that impact stretches far beyond even the wonderful characters and stories of great redemption. As, as, as inspiring as the story of Ruth is and how we all want to be more like Ruth or Boaz and definitely not like Naomi. Right? How we all want to do this rather than that. This story ain't about them. The story was specifically written to point to something else. The characters of the story are a linchpin between the generations of chaos going on during the time of the judges and what God was doing to break the generations of chaos. So far, I have successfully avoided planting my flag in who I think, I believe, wrote the book of Ruth. There's no clear answer out there, and so opinions abound, but there are actually a great number of theories floating around, but there are two real main categories of theory, two big ones. Option one is that Samuel wrote it shortly after he anointed David as king. And if that were true, then that would make this simultaneously the greatest romance story the world has ever seen and a political manifesto that argues that David is the rightful king. Okay. (laughs) Sounds smart. Also sounds a little cynical. I don't know. The other really solid option is that Solomon wrote it. A lot of people think that that's that's why Jewish canon includes it in the wisdom literature. Half of the books in the wisdom literature belong to him. Um, that means it means that the man who asked in Proverbs if it was possible to find a, an excellent wife followed that up by writing about that time that his great-great-grandparents met. It's also why nobody in the original audience needs to know who David is. They already know. They're already aware of who David is. Pointing back to a time when God began working to break the cycle of sin and to bring redemption to his people, Solomon or whoever else wrote it. I'm going to go with Solomon, but I don't actually know. Whoever wrote it. They they do that to show that God's good plan is being worked out long, long before everybody else in the world got to understand what pieces were actually coming together. Before anybody's aware of the moving parts, God is already fulfilling his great plan to bring redemption to his people. Okay, but how long before? Longer than what's been spelt out for us so far. But it's been hinted at over and over again throughout the letter. Look at verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nation, Nation fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Christians have got to stop hating on genealogies, man. This one's gold. The writer of Ruth traces back ten generations from King David. Ten generations. It's a good round number. Oh, but I thought you said that they, they like the number seven is a good round number. They did. And Obed makes eight. God brought fulfillment. And he flew right past it. Obed makes eight. And God's still not done. Because Jesse makes nine. And God's still not done because David makes ten. See, what was lost 
in Elimelech's broken family line is not merely restored. It's not just cobbled back together. No, no, no. No, it's blown out of stinking water. God's not done yet. He didn't just restore and redeem. He is amplifying and bringing even greater promise than we have our eyes are open to. And that's just the genealogy that the writer of Ruth was aware of. A writer living near the time of David or shortly after the time of David, showing, tracing the, the family line to what was then considered Israel's great king. But those of us who know that the story goes on after David can trace the line forward too, can't we? Which is exactly what Matthew does when he opens his gospel account with the genealogy, Matthew 1, verse 1, in the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, the child of redemptive promise that was Obed, he not only gets overshadowed by the promise of his grandson, poor guy, but David himself pointed beyond himself to a future heir who would sit on his throne forever. Ruth the Moabite, specifically in Matthew's gospel, is a celebrated part of the family line of Jesus. That means that God wasn't merely working to to end the time of Judges and the days of Ruth. He was doing that, but beyond that, he was present and actively working out his cosmic plan of redemption for the whole world during the time of Ruth. The writer of Ruth has no idea what's coming. We get to know. One of my favorite study resources right now is the Reformation Study Bible. It says it this way. Um, We are not to view the book of Ruth as merely a story of honorable people in a dishonorable era, but as the account of God's providence and grace in providing a king who gives rest to his people, Israel. Now, of course, David fails to give Israel permanent rest. But in providing a son for Naomi, the Lord also preserves a lineage that births David's greatest son, Jesus Christ, who gives rest to all who trust in him. So there's a final question that flows out of the book of Ruth for us. And and the question is not, well, what do you think about romance stories now, punk? (laughs) They're they're better than I thought. That's not the question. And it's not even, how will you work to match the humility and resolve of characters like Boaz and Ruth? That's not the question either. The question that any modern reader of Ruth must answer is this. Will you find rest in the same place that they did? Will you find rest in the same place that they did? Noble character for sure. They've got it in spades. This, This story is dripping with great people to emulate. Awesome. But that character is rooted in a confidence that God is exactly who he says he is. Period. And that he can be trusted to hold every single thing that you think is important. Period. It's rooted in a confidence that he is good and that he restores in his good time. Not merely what was lost, but far more than that. He also writes a redemption story that's bigger and truer and massive, and more bigger than you have the ability to comprehend in any given moment. Like pick a point on the map, you don't see everything he's doing. Turn any way you want, you can't see farther than he's already worked and will be working. 
Will you trust the goodness of God in spite of loss, in spite of sorrow, in spite of circumstances swirling on around you? Will you trust him in a way that causes you to cling to others for their good, even when they have absolutely nothing to offer you to uh, back in return? Will you trust him in a way that causes you to consistently humble yourself before others and let him be the one to raise you up and set you where he wants you in his good time when he wants to do so, so that it brings the greatest joy to everyone involved? Church, God is either worthy of your trust or he ain't worthy of your trust. There's no in between on that one. He's either worthy of your trust or he's not. So what what do little old us do with this? What What do we do with the story of Ruth? If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, our, our response is to actually rest. It's to rest, to take our foot off of the gas. There are seasons to work your tail off, sure. But a rooted confidence is what gives those seasons their, their true shape. Without that shape, you're in trouble. You can't put the cart before the horse on this one. We rest. We trust. And then we get to work so that our work is not misshapen. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's the time that we set aside to give you space to respond, to begin to translate the head response into some kind of action response, whatever that looks like for you. What if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus? Can you respond to God's word? The answer is absolutely yes. The Bible teaches that we are all by default separated relationally from God because of our sin, that we are owed the good and right punishment for that sin, death. But the Bible also teaches that that God stepped into the brokenness of this world in order to reconcile us to himself. It's a plan that starts with the foundation of the world. It stretches through the story of Ruth and then on to the restoration of all things. And God is either worthy of your trust or ain't worthy of your trust. So how how does he restoring? Great question. The eternal son of God stepped into human history, put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on a cross as a sinless sacrifice to make full and final payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness. The great redeemer calls us to trust him and his finished work on our behalf in order to find rest in him and with him forever. You can do that this morning. You can, you can finally put your trust in Jesus. You do, that repenting by, you do that by repenting of your sin and turning to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I'd love to be helpful to you. We're going to sing. I'm going to pray. I'll be down there if you want to talk about it. Let's talk. Maybe you're here today and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's by formally joining our church family, or maybe it's by uh, finally saying yes, being obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized, or maybe it's time to say yes to his call that he's placed upon your life to to take the gospel somewhere far away from here. Whatever that pathway is, we want to help you do that well. Let's talk about that too. But whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the story of Ruth. Thank you for wrecking my previously wrong opinions about the story. Thank you for a story that's real. 
I see my own brokenness here. I see my own bitterness here. I see my own giving up here. And I see you. I see how you preserve and provide and redeem. How you cling to, even as I fight off your clinging. Thank you for loving us first. Help us see that better. Help us find our rest in what you sent your son to do. Help us find our rest in who you are and the promises you've made. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? Open eyes to see and ears to hear. Draw men and women into your kingdom today. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. And, uh, you know, our, whatever season we're in, Stephen talked about, whether it's rest or work, whether we're in good days or bad days, um, none of that is possible to endure, whether good or bad. Um, we don't have the strength inside of ourselves. Our, our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. So uh, we started this Ruth series with, uh, with a song, and let's, let's end it with this song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me.